What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Apartment 113 podcast, where we talk with cool folks in the cannabis and psychedelics industry to learn about their projects and celebrate their successes. My name is Rob Sanchez, and this is episode 37. We're joined today by the founder and CEO of Fund Canna, Adam Stetner. Fund Canna is the leading source of debt capital to the cannabis industry. The funding products offered are customizable, flexible, renewable, and reliable. They've been designed exclusively for cannabis operations and the ancillary companies that support the space. For more than 20 years, their team of financial experts have, has provided nearly $20 billion in funding to underserved businesses and individuals across the country. Find out more at fundcana.com and enjoy the show. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's excellent to connect with you and and learn a little bit more on the on the financial side and and the capital side of the cannabis industry. I think we've not had a guest on from your corner of the space just yet. Good to be first. We passed each other a few times at Benzinga just recently here in Chicago. Were you also down in Miami earlier this year? Uh, I was in Miami um, and uh, and thought, aside from the floods and the rain, it was uh, a remarkable conference. Yeah, it's always uh, it's always an informative conference for me, for sure. I'm in the back scribbling notes and and checking out all the different sessions and panels. It's kind of a, a who's who, I think, for some of the cannabis space when it comes to innovation and kind of startups as well. Agreed. Well, it's... It's excellent to have Fun Canna on. Um, in, in general, on the show, we like to kind of rewind the clock a little bit and talk about your past with cannabis or what you were doing really before Fun Canna um, started. Where did your journey begin, I guess, either with cannabis or with financial lending and capital services? Sure. Yeah, well, so I'll go back not too far, uh, but I'll go back. <laughs> I, I uh, I was born and raised uh, and lived until the age of 32 in, in and around New York City. Um, and, uh, and my dad was a heavy user of cannabis. And, and, uh, and so my exposure to, um, although heavy use, I think, uh, relatively healthy. He was a creative guy uh, and a he was a professional photographer. Um, worked with a lot of other creative types and um, and was a hippie of sorts. And so his use of cannabis was not hidden. It was never viewed or, or conveyed to me, even as a young child, as it being something illicit or unhealthy. Um, certainly um, not for kids, uh, but it wasn't hidden from me. It was... Uh, he. He used cannabis uh, openly, um, and and as did many of his friends. And so, growing up in that environment where you're surrounded by the energy of New York City, the culture of art and music, um, and the food scene and museums, um, and having uh, a father that not only uh, smelled like cannabis but would uh, often espouse the benefits um, when used properly and responsibly. Um, 
I've been around it my whole life. I, I ironically didn't try uh, uh, weed until I was in college. Ah, it's that kind of forbidden fruit effect. If it was more readily available, perhaps, or the stigma was lower. Yeah, that, it, that it wasn't is lower. correct. Yeah, it was weird, right? Because most of my friends uh, uh, started using, um, uh, again, responsibly uh, and casually, but, but would use it socially um, in high school. And to me, it wasn't that big of a deal, where for them, it was like this thing that they wanted to try and was forbidden. Um, for me, my dad, when I was probably 16 or so, always told me, when you're ready to try it, let me know. Um, I, I don't want you just, uh, as he would say, smoking grass with just anyone. Um, yeah, wow. And, and so, but, but having said that, uh, I, I tried it in school. I loved it. I'll tell you why I loved it. Aside from the obvious uh, social aspect, I have uh, OCD. Uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, and I'm very anxious. And what I found was the first time I wasn't like crowds weren't great for me when I was a kid, or even like teenager. Um, and the opposite of what many people will say how cannabis makes them anxious. Uh, you know, some people will say that right, um, it had the exact opposite effect on me where um, hmm. I was relaxed and I my anxiety subsided, my uh, compulsions were reduced. And, um, and not only that, I, I was uh, more social um, and uh, a little less uh, introverted. Um, and in that regard, it was like a miracle uh, for me. And so I, I remember the first time I called my father and told him that I had tried it with some friends at school and um, he was pissed, not that I had tried it, but he was pissed that that experience wasn't shared with him. Oh, um, man, that he missed and, out on the yeah, revelation. Uh, yeah, wild and, and pretty <laughs> good, not, not traditional by any means. Um, but, but what I'd say is it never entered my mind that it would be a part of my professional career. Um, and, and so uh, where I started uh, with all things uh, and kind of ridiculous looking back, uh, although I wouldn't change a thing, I started in the apparel business and uh, okay. women's clothing, as crazy as it sounds. Um, and uh, But I got into manufacturing, distribution and sales uh. of moderately priced women's clothing. Uh, but, but as part of that, in order to manufacture uh, clothing, everything gets financed. And it all gets financed with a very specific method called factoring. And so I was exposed to factoring in my very early 20s, around 21 years old. I uh, see. And, and for five years, uh, I worked at this company um, and, and climbed the ranks, becoming an executive in my early 20s at this publicly traded uh, apparel company. But I, again, I was fascinated by the way money moved. It was an I love numbers. I love math. It's always been something that I'm drawn to um, the way uh, every formula has an inverse uh, separate formula uh, was fascinating to me. And so this concept mm. of not having the money, but taking an order from someone. So you don't have the money to manufacture what you have to manufacture. Right. You it's a cash people, advance process. Is that factoring? Yeah. Basically, yeah. Um, so basically, the way the way traditional factoring works is 
you take an order from someone, doesn't matter what you what you are taking that order for, but apparel is very wi- widely uh, uses factoring. But you receive an order from a buyer. So let's say it's a department store, and they're going to buy arbitrarily ten thousand shirts. You have to manufacture those shirts in order to fulfill the order and get paid. But in order to manufacture ten thousand shirts, you may need one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or more in order to do it. And then you may sell them for $250,000. So what you do is you approach a factor and you, in essence, sell that purchase order at a discount. They give you that money now. And then when you deliver the goods, the purchaser pays your factor instead of paying you. And and so I was fascinated by this process of moving money and leveraging somebody else's capital to fulfill an order. Um, yeah, right. Really making mountains there, um, maybe where the resources weren't apparent yet. It's kind of uh, can be financial magic in the right situation or really turn around an operation, I imagine. Correct. Yeah. Well, uh, and not only you're right, Rob, but but what it did for us, what I viewed and what was so fascinating to me is it unlocked our ability to receive larger orders than we would otherwise be able to take. So we might have been able to fill a 2,000 unit order, but we were starting to get 10,000, 12,000, in some cases, 25,000 unit orders, and we simply didn't have the money to manufacture. So it was like chicken or egg. If I didn't have the money, how could I take the order? Uh, And ultimately, factoring resolved that. Now, factoring has been around forever. It's really the oldest form of, I'll call it lending, even though technically it's, it's more of an advance. Um, but, but to me in my early twenties, it was a new concept, uh, blew my mind open to what was possible. Um, and then from there, I worked for a little bit on wall street, uh, doing analysis and, um, and again, money movement. Um, and then in my early thirties, I moved to San Diego where I began lending. Uh, and I, I started with consumer lending first student loans, um, and, that when I moved out, I was starting over. Didn't really know anyone um, in San Diego, but just wanted a different life from the life. Yeah, that's quite a change. Other side of the country right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, but what I really did was I'd only lived in New York, right? And the grind in New York, as I'm sure many of your listeners that live in New York or have spent extended time in New York, the grind is a real thing. And, um, and I love it. I, I Don't get me wrong. I'm a New Yorker at heart. Um, but, uh, the culture is phenomenal. The diversity is amazing. The pace of life is incredible, but I didn't really see a path that would ever lead to balance. Everything was always more. You had, even when you achieved the next milestone was achieved more. And it's that hedonic treadmill. Correct. Yeah. And on the one hand I'm driven and, and I want to be challenged. But on the other, I don't want the intensity to uh, be more than uh, or, or to just supplant the, the enjoyment of achieving things and learning and growing. And, uh, and so I just wanted to see what it, would be live, uh, what it would be like to live somewhere else. So moving to San Diego, getting into consumer lending, as I said, student loans, um, I learned quickly that there was opportunity to be creative. I love to be creative. I come from a creative family, as we just discussed. My mother also very creative. 
she was an agent for directors that made uh, music videos and TV commercials. Oh, okay. And so to me, I'm, I'm math-minded, so I'm left brain. Everyone in my family is right brain. But here I am as I work with math and financial product, I get to be creative. What can I do to make the financial product that all students going to college need? How do I make it more accessible? How do I tailor those products so that they fit the client need instead of the typical kind of banking method of uh, underwriting to a credit box and just, hey, this is our product, take it or leave it. I wanted to design product that met the clients where they needed it to be and, um, and had flexibility uh, that met their needs. So I, I started doing that, developed a direct-to-consumer channel, and then uh, a business development channel where we partnered with people. And um, oh, wow. in, insanely, uh, it worked. Uh, the product worked for the clients, the distribution methods worked, and um, we ended up doing almost 15 billion in student loans. Um, that is product market fit right there. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a wild ride. Uh, very interesting. I learned a lot. And not only was it marketing and sales, but it was financial product design and then servicing of those assets because we kept all of the loans on our balance sheet. Uh, and so uh, it was a great experience for me. I did that for about five years. And then the financial crisis hit in 08. And you know, as is often the case, I'm sure, again, for many of your listeners, sometimes big events, which we'll get to in a minute, there's another one, the pandemic, but big events change the course of people's lives. So that financial crisis in 08, I thought I had found my calling, period, full stop, which would have been consumer lending in the form of student loans. But when that crisis hit, all the banks stopped lending, and I relied on banks to lend to me so that I could, in turn, lend to others. Um, so I figured if I couldn't get money in that crisis, small business likely would struggle too. $15 billion is a lot. If I can't get banks' attention, um, what's going to happen to the restaurants, dry cleaners, contractors that we all rely on. So I started another company that was a small business lender. Uh, it took a solid two to three years for me to figure out the market uh, and deal with the economy that was on fire. Uh, yeah, it's not all, it wasn't all on, in your court, I guess, with, as far as the variables there. No, but the things that were, like the things I could control were the areas I focused on most. Uh, but I built that up. I did that actually for 14 years. Um, and uh, and you know, our first year we did a million dollars. And the last year I did over 300 million. Um, and all in, we did about 3 billion there to small business. We underwrote over a million clients and, um, and funded over 100,000 of them. And, um, but then during the pandemic, the other big life-changing event, um, during the pandemic, I was forced to work from home. All of my employees, I had 220 employees. They were all working from home. And while at home uh, working, um, a story came on television about small business in the pandemic. And one of the segments in that story was about cannabis and how cannabis had been deemed essential. Now, again, I gave you my background with cannabis. It was... Uh, 
as a believer and a user in the product, but I wasn't professionally involved in cannabis, and, uh, but I was fascinated by this, really with the same kind of analytical mind. A, right. An industry that was deemed federally illegal, and clearly I disagree with the designation, but nonetheless, that's the designation, deemed federally illegal is also deemed essential and therefore open and operating. And all of the businesses that I had been servicing, um, and at the time, I, as I said, I had funded over 100,000, but there were 4,500 of them active in my portfolio. All of them were, it, they were uh, forced to close. Basically shuttered. So, yeah. And well, they were all federally legal businesses you could start today. <laughs> correct. Yeah. But yet they were, they were, it was a demand that they, they close and that their employees couldn't work, they couldn't operate, and I'm watching something that I understood to be illegal at the federal level, and, um, and that was operating, not, I won't say business as usual, but it was, they were open, dispensaries were open, um, growers, manufacturers, labs, distributors were operating in order to service the essential need. And so I started, I'm a very curious person, so I started, uh, trying to understand the market, the supply chain, the timeline for growth, the timeline to manufacture, the, the, the different state uh, regulations, because they're so fragmented. Oh, it's a um, different beast as soon as you go, you know, 800 miles one way or the other. Yeah. Well, honestly, if you just go eight meters in one direction. Oh, with realize, zoning, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. You, you realize how crazy it is. But yes, you're, you're totally right uh, from a zoning perspective. Uh, but it was like as soon as I scratched the surface, I was fascinated um, and candidly frustrated uh, because it, it was hard to just understand as a layman. It was hard to understand why, wait, why would a state do this? Why do you have more growers licensed than retailers or dispensaries? Uh, doesn't that create a glut of product? There's no interstate commerce. And so there was, a, there was logic missing. And, and then I started to look at the financial piece. And there I saw, I know there are 15,000 banks that service small business. And at the time that was my demographic. And when I looked at the time, this is early 2020, right as the pandemic hit, maybe April of 20, there were about 500 banks that service cannabis. So it, it was like a, it was such a small, from 15,000 to 500. So, right. a so different I target that, market entirely. Yeah, it was like 3% <laughs> of, of banks were servicing cannabis. And only then as deposit institutions, they weren't really lending. There were a handful that lent, but only on real estate and only if that entity was non-plant touching. So you know, a plant lot of touching strings entity, attached. Correct. They would have to create this org chart of entities and then they could borrow through the one to get the land and then the tenant could be the place. It was so convoluted. Umbrella within umbrella company there. <laughs> that, yeah, the, the, it was like a, a flow chart of just uh, it was just a mess. So I started trying to understand supply chain. Uh, how long does it take to cultivate if you're indoor? How long for outdoor? Uh, what's the process to manufacture biomass into crude or, or finish distillate? Um, and then how does it all work? Where do the taxes get paid? Then my mind was blown by 280E. 
And yeah, and what a detriment, right? When you have these businesses barely operating on the legal side with state justification, with the federal, with federal oppression there, and then 280E on top of it to hit their business expenses and their quarterly profits. It's a, it's a losing battle right from the beginning, it seems. <laughs> well, it, what it was, it just seemed like this was a group or an industry that was not only severely underrepresented, but also underserved. And, um, and historically, I, I had been servicing two underserved groups with product. It was young consumers with a financial product, and it right. was small businesses, which although legal and banked 100% with deposit accounts, traditional non-cannabis business is declined by banks for lending at a rate of 75 to 80%. In a normal economy, the approval rate for traditional business is 20 to 25%. And so I figured if these were statistics that I was able to uh, try to uh, mitigate with designing financial product and had done so uh, to the tune of nearly $3 billion, um, if I worked hard and I tried to understand the need of the cannabis industry, what might I be able to do in the way of designing financial product for this industry? So I studied right. for a year. And then after a year, I gave my board notice that I'd be leaving the company that I had started with the intent of starting another one. And in the fall of 2021, uh, officially started Fund Canna. And then, so Fun Canna is the third, uh, the third company you've started, and the second is still ongoing. Is the first the student loan? So, so I left both of those and have nothing to do with parted ways. Life. Yeah, I see. So, so in order for it to be usually uh, in both cases uh, brought on um, other ownership. So at the last company, the small business lender, I brought in private equity in 2015. So. At this point, come 2021, when I give them notice, um, th they're the majority owner. And I, I um, gave them months of notice so that I wouldn't leave them high and dry. Now, right. that business, at the time that I left, um, it was doing amazingly well. I mean, we, again, 250 to 300 million in, in originated volume and, and revenue uh, of 70 to 80 million dollars uh, and and highly profitable but um, but I don't believe in doing a lot of things well at once I think if you're going to do something and do it very well and my job is to serve so if I'm going to service an industry I really need to be embedded in that industry and understand it and there's no right. way I'm not Elon Musk I give the guy a ton of credit He's running numerous companies all at once. Um, I, I don't know that I can do that. What I know, I think I'm very good at focusing on a thing. And Giving it your all. My, yeah, and working my tail off to do it very well. And so... Uh, yeah, that's, that's some wisdom there. And I think some humility as well to, you know, not bite off more than, even if you could chew it, right? More than maybe your family or the rest of your life may start to impact from... Um, and, and easier said than done at times to say no to yeah. anything, right? It can be it can be hard. It's it's very it is. It's, you're you're 100 right. I appreciate you bringing it up, and I'll tell you the 
um, as a, as a guy that you're operating a business, you do you have employees that count on you, you have clients that are counting on you, and then in your personal life, you have your family and your friends and people you love and care about that are counting on you, um, and and you have to balance all of it. But I really do take clients and employee the I work for them. I mean, although technically my employees work for me, uh, my job is to make sure that I'm giving them the attention, the tools um, that they need in order to do their job well and be successful. And if I don't do that, shame on me, not on them. Uh, and so I don't know that I'd be able to take all of those things on, meaning run more than one entity at a time, especially when one of them is in startup mode. Um, and I have so much to learn. I didn't feel like I'd be in a position where I could do both and do them well. Maybe do them both and do them, you know, just okay. But right, I never something may out. get dropped. Yeah. yeah, I don't set out to do anything okay. I want to, I want to aspire anyway to to be great at what I'm doing, and and I'm not judging that. My clients and my employees are going to tell me whether we're doing a great job. When you're on that precipice, kind of between those businesses, you've been there twice now. How how do you start to weigh out those those decisions. I mean, that's maybe more of a life question than a business one, perhaps. But I feel like when it comes to those like kind of crossways or segments in people's lives, you can kind of speculate. Like, this is how it's going to be if I stay here in the next five years. This is maybe how it's going to be if I start this next endeavor. Is what Were there any conversations like that or tools that you use to help try to really boil down the decision or was it more of a, a feeling and kind of a gut check? Uh, I, I, I love that. I, I, um, so I think it's all of what you're saying. Uh, but a lot of those conversations as crazy as I may come across to your listeners, those conversations occur with myself. Um, but kind of internal but monologue say that, conversation. I, yeah. Well, I've learned over time and, and it's not easy. And sometimes uh, you you said gut check, uh, and I think that that's the right way to look at it, uh, at least for me. It's the right way for me to look at it. I am very self-critical, and I try to be very aware. Um, and so to that end, I try to recognize when I'm looking. You know, you come up with an idea. You believe in the idea. You're excited about the idea. Then what happens is as you start to think it through, you find ways to either justify cracks in the idea or the foundation. Uh, you justify them or you believe like, I'll figure it out. You find something that might be a blocking item and you're like, well, I'll figure that's so far away. I'll figure it out when I get there. I go the other way in the sense that like I try to be critical of myself um, when I'm processing these things as if someone else gave the idea. Uh, uh, so I, I try to step away and then remove, uh, I refer to confirmation bias. I'm not looking, because we are biased for our own thoughts, our own ideas. We want to believe what yes. we're thinking. <laughs> it's and hard so, to have a vision and not believe in it. <laughs> that, well, and that's just it. But, but I, I've learned you know, over time, I didn't, it didn't start this way. But I've learned to um, remove myself from the idea. And as I'm processing it, almost act like I'm a board member to the guy with the idea and to ask the hard questions 
and to try to pose whatever hurdles I think could be uh, encountered. Um, and, early, and huh? so as that, early as possible. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the process, right? It's not overly complicated or scientific. The hardest part of it is just actually not being biased or allowing your ego. Like I, I mentioned earlier, I'm a very anxious person. It, to a large extent, that is such an asset for me because that anxiety keeps me, I don't want to say honest because I'm honest no matter what. It just, it keeps me grounded because the anxiety um, reminds me that things can go wrong, right? It's like, it's always it's there. Kind of always letting you know how it could be if you didn't stay on the path you're on now or maybe continue with the, right. the decision well, you've made. Or, or worse yet, it reminds me that if I stay on the path that I'm on without altering course, like if I don't listen to the signs, it'd be easier for me to ignore the negativity uh, because it feels better. But that doesn't get you where you want to go. So the anxiety yeah. makes sure that when there's, it's like the smallest little pebble in my shoe, uh, I pay attention to it because if if I look at the things that are either starting to show themselves as weaknesses um, and I focus on them uh, with the intent of trying to overcome them or change course, then the odds are that won't they won't grow. They won't become bigger problems. Right. Almost and, addressing the obstacle as you find it. That's leaning on into some stoicism there with a, like the obstacle is the way, right? And yes. Just handling right. the weakness or handling the gap that you find and that's moving right. down the road to the next one. That's exactly that. So that's exactly right. It's a it's probably a better articulation of the process for me is just that it's like I always say. Uh, whether to friends, family, employees, um, clients, much better that we talk about problems than pretend they don't exist. I, 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 and it's okay to make mistakes because we all make them. So let's talk about the concerns. Let's talk about the mistakes. It's easy to talk about what's going great. And everybody wants to do that. But that doesn't usually, usually not always, it doesn't advance us from where we are as much as Focusing on the areas of weakness or the areas of concern, the things that make us uncomfortable make us grow. That's and also so getting I, into the lean process, right? Like lean six sigma and like operational process, you know, looking to find those gaps, those efficient, trying to make everything as efficient as it can. Yeah. Can be. I, but, but again, for, yes, you're, you're totally right, uh, Rob. But, but for me, it starts in my head first. Right. Uh, all <laughs> of this is like, uh, you know, I, I once uh, th I saw a sweatshirt years ago it was like Detroit versus everybody was the sweatshirt that the guy was wearing. And so I made a sweatshirt for myself that said me versus myself. Um, and and uh, and I mean, stolen idea, right? Not an original idea jacked off of Detroit there. But um, but <laughs> kudos it, it was to that Lions fan. What's that? Oh, I was just said kudos to that Lions fan. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> but no, that's that's an excellent way to, to think about it. And I think a, a good way to sum up that kind of internal thought process or kind of how you really treat those ideas or your, you know, your potential endeavors. That's very hard to take that hat off and step back and um, present your problem to yourself or present your vision. I'm just I'm, terrified of what would happen if I didn't do that. That's the anxiety, right? Yes. <laughs> if I don't do this, what might I miss? 
And that, you know, that like OCD anxiety, I brought it up earlier, not only because cannabis helped with that, um, but also because it never went away. It, it, it's still there. And now as a young person, um, I didn't embrace it. I was um, almost fearful of it. Uh, but uh, as, as once I became a young adult, like in my 20s, um, I've embraced it and I've continued to grow with it. Uh, and I'd be I'd be panicked if it went away at this point. Like I now I want it. Yeah, I think I can relate to you a little bit there, Adam, on my on my kind of my cannabis consumption and 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 vibes with a crowd and like sometimes with groups too big. If I don't know everybody, I, I have a hard time staying as conversational as I actually am for someone that runs a podcast or talks with people regularly. And there is something about cannabis that helps to kind of relax that and um, kind of help focus me on just being there or maybe not worrying about like a late, a late project or a next project or something to do the next week, something I forgot the last morning. It feels like this eternal to-do list and cannabis somehow lets you be okay with the to-do list a little more than just right. constantly thinking about what's going to be step five and, and then eight and 24 <laughs> and, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, look, I agree. What, what I will tell you is I don't function very well out in public if I use cannabis. I also, um, I never use it when I'm working on something, uh, and I don't use it when I'm, I'm out and I'm interacting with people, but I'll use it at the end of the day to like, even before bed, gather my thoughts with a still mind. Uh, uh, right. Process what happened throughout the day and relax uh, for bed. It's almost a way not to turn my brain off, which is what a lot of people say. They're like, oh, you use it to like turn your brain off. No, actually quite the opposite. I use it to clear out the chaos mm. and open my brain up to what I might have experienced, process it all and then drift you know, peacefully uh, to sleep. Yeah. But, but it's with, like the with, windshield wipers, right? Just with clarity. Exactly. Yeah. Cleaning yeah, things off a little bit and winding down. That's right. The sleep benefits are um, excellent with cannabis for anyone suffering from sleep issues. That being that. said, it can go the other direction where sleep can actually be hard without cannabis. So yes. walk that line carefully. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm by no means am I someone that should be giving medical advice to anyone, but I will tell you. I'll echo that. <laughs> for, for a while, I tried uh, taking Ambien to sleep um, and yeah, it didn't work great, but it worked. But it also created it created fog that that was not, that's the opposite of what someone like me wants or needs. You need that clarity like, of the morning and kind of tackle your projects with it. Yeah, right? But even easy, even as I'm falling asleep, I want that awareness and clarity of mind. And um, and the 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 prescription sleep aid would create fog and then knock me out. And then I would wake up with a little bit of fog. Um, and I, I, who wants that? That's I, I not certainly a, did not want that. That's not a great cycle. No, yeah. way. no I'm, I'm glad you found a more natural way to, to, to get to sleep and to kind of Me clean too. the slate there. Yeah. And like on the fun can side, then now that we've kind of covered your, your thought process and, and really the origin of fun canna, and thank you for, for going into that detail. It's awesome to, to see your decision-making process and to, um, consider that perspective, having 
you know, having those businesses running so successfully. I think um, many folks are trying to make their business that successful. So it's awesome to kind of live vicariously through those decisions and see you know, what you did and maybe plan for possible futures. Uh, Fun Canna is approaching the cannabis space from all angles with lending right now. It's not only uh, plant touching dispensaries, grows and manufacturing processing at this point. Um, what else does Fun Canna touch in, in the market or in the space? So uh, first, you're right. We do the entire supply chain that is plant touching. So from cultivation through dispensary retail, everything in between, including lab testing uh, and the like. Um, okay. But we also do, and that's for all of the plant. So we do THC, but we also do hemp CBD. I see. Um, and then all products. So uh, crude oil manufacturing, distillate, uh, edible manufacturing, pre-roll, et cetera. We'll, we'll do it all. And on um, the grow side, indoor, outdoor, distribution, delivery, you name it. But outside of that, we'll do ancillary providers to the industry. Really, the only thing we won't do is fund somebody that is not correlated to the industry. So outside, the ancillary providers, um, nutrients, lighting, um, supplies like uh, grow tables, greenhouse, um, armored transport uh, will do, uh, cash pickup we funded. Um, So uh, you name it, if it is either directly in the plant touching supply chain or it is a business that services the plant touching supply chain. I see. Um, we will fund uh, those businesses. And it becomes a pretty big footprint if you look at it like that, with all of the different supply chains providing materials to grows or to manufacturing facilities. Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of folks in the village making it work, and I I love to hear about the ancillary side of things. the The plant touching side of the business is obviously the fun part. That's where the that's where the plants actually at. The magic is literally happening there. Yes. But often the ancillary businesses are are just as crucial to those operations. And I think sometimes the the conversation can skip over ancillary folks like accountants, um, software folks, you know, people that make the that make the industry move for real. So it's it's good to lean into that and and have services available for them to you know to start their entrepreneurial dreams or get through tough times does fun canna enter the picture at any stage of a business or is it more in the startup stage that you you work with operators now so uh i that's a a great uh question we do not fund pre-revenue business so we actually when you say startup that can be defined by different people in different ways very much you and i (laughs) would probably think about it uh, conversationally is just a brand new business. So in that regard, we won't fund a brand new business, but I want to say gotcha. why, uh, because I think it's important for anyone that might be listening that is in the process of starting a business. It is a very difficult and lonely time. And so to hear a guy on this podcast say all the things that I've said and then in a, and about wanting to support clients and understand clients and then say, but I won't fund startups. Uh, yeah. the, reason, the reason is I want to be, uh, and when I say I, Fund Canna, I want Fund Canna to be the ultimate partner for 
uh, our clients, for, for the businesses that leverage our capital, I want to make sure that we're supportive um, and never viewed as uh, a burden. And in that regard, I it's see. very easy as a lender, it's very easy to over leverage a borrower. And, and there are a few ways that you can avoid doing that. And we try to do all of these, which is um, if you look at inflow and outflow of money over a period of time, you can determine what free cash flow looks like, what growth trends are like. You can look at cyclicality within the business. Do they have seasonal ups and downs? Not just as an industry, but you, know, you take a cannabis business in, let's say, Michigan, may have different um, cyclical moves uh, up and down than, let's say, Washington State. And um, A lot of variables there. Correct. And so when you look at... When you look at geography, you look at segment of supply chain, you look at time in business, you look at revenue numbers, uh, you even look at credit profiles of the individuals, you can get a sense of how to help by right-sizing the amount of money you give and the uh, repayment structure so that it is not burdensome and ultimately serves what they're trying to achieve. If I only kind of makes worry both about, parties successful at that point, guarantee correct. or starts to guarantee that or make it more likely. <laughs> that well, if I only worried about Funcana putting money out and then you know pushing hard to get it back, uh, we wouldn't a we wouldn't last long, uh, and we wouldn't be viewed as uh, trustworthy or supportive, um, and that's that's really that's not unique to cannabis. That's really the way you'd want any financial partner. Um, or support structure to work. And so with a startup, you don't have any track record of inflow and outflow of money, it, right? Yes, There's no exactly. cash flow to, to look at. There's no business history. There's no cyclicality. You don't know who their suppliers are. You don't know who their clients are. Um, and so therefore, if you just look at a business plan and somebody's personal credit, you have no idea if you're going to overlever them. No matter how much or how little you give them, That's it really a shot is shot in the dark at that point. And I, I don't I don't want to be that kind of resource that um, takes our best guess. I want to be a resource that does look, as I said, we've underwritten over a million small businesses. Uh, when I say small, tens of millions qualifies as small uh, by formal definition. How do we study cannabis? Because it is a very unique industry. But I don't want to throw our playbook away from our 20 years of lending. Financial lending success, Correct. yes. Well, how do I take that, learn the cannabis supply chain, the, the unique needs of the space, right? Uh, depending on where someone is within that supply chain or geography, where they are within the country. Um, how do I learn that and then apply almost like an appendix with a new playbook? How do I take what we know? And what I've learned over time is startups, for all the reasons I gave, uh, startups are not, um, they don't really fit our model well. But more importantly, I run the risk of overtaxing their model because that, I don't yeah. have the visibility. The, and and the likelihood of success for startups is already rocky. So overburdening or extending them further, you know, even if even if it would maybe help in some ways is it's not a good place to be at. 
for Funcana as far as a, a partnership perspective and even just at, you know, end of the day, you know, morale for Funcana with wanting your clients to be successful. I imagine it's a, a better path to walk. It, it is. And I, I'll say the last thing I ever want to be viewed at as is um, either an individual or a company that um, created unnecessary burden on somebody else. And, and so that, that's how we, avo- in part, how we avoid it. I mean, diligent underwriting, we've learned over time how to do it very quickly and how to be supportive and how to be uh, excellent communicators. Um, but, but I haven't learned how to effectively lend to or provide capital or access to capital to someone based on an idea without getting it wrong. And so, again, going back to the point we made earlier, it's kind of like I'm always looking to learn, I'm always looking to grow, but I'm also willing to acknowledge if there's an area where I'm not an expert, I want to be the first to tell you that I'm not an expert. Yes, Um, epistemic humility there, right, about the knowledge, the unknown unknowns, acknowledging them. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Excellent conversation today, Adam, man. It was awesome to, to get into the thought process with you and kind of learn about your past, the origins of Funcana here as well. Uh, in the meantime, here, where can our listeners learn more about you or where can they connect with Funcana to uh, talk about funding options and see if their businesses may be good fits? So uh, thank you for, for asking that. I mean, first, the, the obvious and, and the best is uh, check us out online, fund, F-U-N-D, Canna, C-A-N-N-A.com, so fundcana.com. And then you'll see we have phone numbers posted there too. I always say this. I encourage if you hear this, you look at our website and you're interested in calling, um, you know, conversation uh, is, is always free and there's no obligation. We're not a high pressure uh, organization. And so I would encourage people uh, not only uh, to go to the website, but if you've got questions or you're curious, call. Uh, I, mean, I mean it when I tell you, no obligation, no cost, and no pressure, uh, but uh, the phone number is 844-420-FUND. So 844-420-FUND. Um, Cuts right to the point. Yeah. Like and, and then lastly, uh, please visit with us at conferences. Uh, as Rob said, we're, we're at Benzinga. We'll be at MJ BizCon in uh, late November with a booth. Um, but come by, check us out, say hello. Uh, again, no pressure, no obligation, but it's always great to speak to people uh, in the space and understand what they're trying to achieve. And if we can help, terrific. And if it's not the right time or place, then it's just uh, good to have a relationship. Right, right, grow that network. Now, I think that the cannabis community definitely appreciates your approach towards funding and kind of the way you've outlined this as well. We all know there are businesses in different ways that um, the industry's impacted, right, with the green tax. So having uh, having funding options and capital options that are sound and well thought out is uh, sorely needed. Yeah, and thank you again, Adam, for jumping on the show, man. Looking forward to meeting you again here at BizCon. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Thank you for listening to the Apartment 113 podcast. For more information about the show, along with our services and courses, visit apt113.com. 
We offer cannabis software product management, cannabis education courses, and freelance writing. With over a decade of experience in the cannabis industry, Apartment 113 is here to help.